This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Lord, thank you that you watch over us wherever we are and whatever we're doing. Thank you that, that you do want the gospel to go to every person in this generation so that you can come. I pray that soon we will see that happen and that you will come. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, last night Natasha talked about the gospel going to every person in this generation. And that's what we long for. I've had people tell me many times, Adventists, in our Adventist churches, that, well, you know, those people, whoever they're meaning, usually they're meaning people in my part of the world, in the Middle East and North Africa, those people, God's just going to have to reach them some other way. Maybe he'll do it with dreams and angel visits, or maybe probation is already closed for them, but there's no use. We aren't going to send anybody there. I've had many people say that. You know, I want to ask you, does Jesus want to come? He sees far more of the, of the horrors than we see, doesn't he? He sees everybody that's suffering with sickness. He sees the war. He sees the abuse. He sees it all. He wants to come far more than we want him to. If he could finish the work with a dream or an angel visit, he would send one to everybody tonight and he would come tomorrow. But God can't finish the work with dreams and angel visits. If he is doing the fastest, most effective thing he can by sending us to, to finish the work for him. Most people will never respond to a dream or an angel visit until they meet a real live person living in their community who can share what it means to be a, an end-time believer in Jesus. They need to see us in the joyful times. They need to see us in the hard times. In fact, one of the best witnesses is when they see us going through a difficulty and how do we respond to it. You know, God doesn't want us to go through hard times, but sometimes he allows it so that others watching us through their through their drapes and blinds, can see how we respond and it can impact their lives. Our problem in the Middle East and North Africa is we don't have anybody living in most of those communities. We don't have any Adventists in most of them. And so I'm going to talk a little bit today about that, that dilemma of are there people that don't need to hear the gospel? Are there people that we shouldn't try to share the gospel with? It was June of 2007 when a young lady in Bukhara, Uzbekistan. Now, Uzbekistan is not part of MENA, the Middle East and North Africa Union, but, but it's related to it. There, it's a Muslim country. June 2007, not all that long ago, a young lady came to the door of one of our, our members and knocked on her door and smiled brightly and said, Hi. I want to learn more about Christianity. Would you take me to your church? Well, our members in Uzbekistan are very fearful. They have been through a lot. They are always afraid to admit that their members, they're, they meet secretly many times. I shouldn't say they're always afraid. They've been actively working, but, but they're just cautious. And so our member wasn't sure what she should do. She said, how do you know? What makes you think I'm a believer? Oh, the girl said, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you, I went to school at the university with your daughter. We talked all the time about religion. I really want to know more. Would you take me to your church? And our member is thinking, you know, that's funny. I do have a daughter. She did go to the university, but she never told me about anybody that she was talking to about religion. But the girl seemed sincere, and so she said, okay. And she started taking her to our, our legal church. It's a house church, but it's a legal one in Bukhara. And she started taking her there on Sabbath. And on Friday night, she started taking her to a small prayer group in a home in a nearby village. It was technically illegal. They'd been meeting for two years. In that, at that time, in that part of Uzbekistan, you had to have 50 people in your group 
to be able to register. And it was illegal to meet until you were registered. Well, how do you get 50 people to be able to register? And, and so it was, they were meeting. It was illegal. They had a number of Muslims that were, had become Adventists. They had a number of Muslims that were studying. And then some Christians. And they were all meeting together every Friday night. So this lady is taking the young girl with her on Friday night and on Sabbath. One week, two weeks, three weeks. The third week, in that small house group, while they were praying, they heard a noise. And when they opened their eyes at the end of the prayer, they realized that somebody had slipped over to the door and unlocked it, and the room, the house, was filled with police. The video cameras were rolling, the cameras were snapping, they lined everybody up around the, the wall of the room and made them, they took their fingerprints and their signatures, descri description of where they lived and why they were in this illegal gathering. And then they dismissed them all. This is 2007. They dismissed them all and said, you'll be hearing from us shortly. Well, they knew what that meant. And in a little while, a few days, every one of them that had been there that night got a knock on their door and a policeman was there, and he invited them to come to court. That's the word they use. He invited them to come to court. But that's not like being invited to a birthday party. It's not something you can say, oh, sorry, it's not convenient for me today. When you're invited, you're arrested, basically. And they all went to court. They, they sat there in the courtroom and looked around quietly and realized that every one of them was there that had been in the room that night except for the young girl. And then they knew she was a spy that the government had planted to find out where they were meeting and, and to let them come in. Well, six weeks later, Barbara and I were visiting Bukhara, Uzbekistan, and we met with some of the church members in the church. This is the house church off here on the side, and these are some of the members. And, and we had a wonderful time together, and toward the end of the, of the morning... Somebody whispered to us, Pastor, would you be willing to come and meet with us this afternoon in a house group in a nearby village? And I said, sure. Well, I hadn't heard this story. I didn't know anything about what had gone on. They, we went and met in this room. This was the room where they had all been meeting and arrested. When we came in this time, they had a banquet set up, a wonderful food in, in the Middle East and Central Asia. The food is absolutely wonderful. Um, and, and we were all sitting around there together. They had no Bibles or hymnals. They had all been confiscated by the police, and they, even if they had one hidden at home, they wouldn't have brought it here. But we sang together, we prayed together, we talked together, and then they told us this story. I, I, was, I think they were afraid that I would be afraid. I wasn't very worried. I didn't figure Uzbekistan wants good relationships with the United States, and I didn't think they would come in while I was there and arrest me and everybody else. They, but this was the first time in six weeks that they had had the courage to try to meet again in this room. You see, what had happened in court is they all had been fined. They were told, they were reminded of what the law is. The law is that if you get caught once, you're fine. If you get caught meeting illegally a second time, the fine is doubled. If you get caught a third time, you go to prison. Most of our pastors in Uzbekistan have been arrested once or twice, and they're facing prison sentences if they get caught again going to meet with an illegal group. But so we were, we were sitting there meeting again, praying together. You can see some of them are, are still Muslims. Some of them um, are, are new Adventists that used to be Muslims. And, and as they were praying, I started to cry. Because they weren't praying. They weren't praying for safety. They weren't praying for protection. They prayed, Lord, the next time someone acts interested in knowing more about you, Help us not to turn them away just because we think they might be a spy. You know, I don't know if I have that kind of courage or not. We know in MENA that there are spies. We probably have spies in our churches. We may have spies working for us even. We, we know that the governments are going to have spies. The governments are tracking everything we say and write by email. I mean, we use secure systems and... And we try to, to take care, but we know 
that the government's watching what we do and reading what we write and say. I'm sure that some government will know about some of the things that I say here this week. We're trying to be careful what we say. But we have had people come back from camp meetings and have the CID, the Central Intelligence Department, meet them at the airport and say, Mr. So-and-so, welcome back. We know that you were at, in such and such a state at such and such a camp meeting and you spoke on these, com on these topics. Welcome back. They aren't threatening them, but they're just letting them know they're watching what we're doing and saying. You know, sometimes we meet somebody. I, we can be out here on the street in Louisville. It can be anywhere that we live. Sometimes we meet somebody and we wonder if we should help them. A blind man with a can, a mother with a baby walking between the cars, a child with a broken leg, a new family in town. We meet somebody and we wonder if we should help them. And whenever that happens, I can almost guarantee you that you think of a particular story in Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. We meet somebody and we say, okay, Lord, do I need to stop? I mean, it's raining and I'm in my good clothes on the way to church and their car looks like it's broken down or, you know, we, we, we think, but Lord, am I being like the Levite or the priest? You know, we remember that story in Luke chapter 10. I want to just go through it briefly with you. You can follow along on the screen. Jesus, you remember the, rich, the, the ruler, had, the lawyer had come and tried to trap Jesus. And it says in verse 30, Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest yeah, okay, by chance a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, or Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. Now, do you ever go to bed at night wondering if you were like the priests today? Oh, Lord, you know, I didn't even slow down. I mean, I saw them out of the corner of my eye, but I was late for that meeting, and I didn't even slow down. Or maybe you go to bed at night and you say, Lord, I was like the Levite today. I, I slowed down and looked, but you know, Lord, I didn't have any money with me. I mean, I'm not a mechanic. There's nothing I could do to help them, and, and I went on. I think most of us know what it feels like to be the priest or the Levite. We can look at times in our lives when we've done just that. We might even know what it feels like to be the man in the ditch. Have you ever had a day where life left you pretty beat up? and you thought nobody was paying any attention and you wish somebody would. Maybe you stood in the rain beside your car that was out of gas or, or whatever it was, and nobody seemed to notice. But when Jesus asked the question in verse 36, who was, my, who was his neighbor? We know what we should answer, don't we? Okay, he's, we've got the priest, the Levite, the, the man in the ditch, and when Jesus asked the question, who was his neighbor? We say, the one who showed mercy, the Good Samaritan, don't we? We know that's the answer. But you know, there's one more person in the parable. There's one more person that showed mercy in this parable in Luke 10. I don't know if you noticed, but I skipped verse 35. I ended at verse 34, and then I skipped to verse 36. Verse 35 says, on the next day when he departed... He took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Now, who does the innkeeper represent? You know, what purpose does verse 35 have in this story? Why did Jesus add a new person to the story? He doesn't need him. We clearly know that we're supposed to be like the Samaritan, not the priest and the Levite. So why does God add the innkeeper into this story? Well, back when I was in school, I, probably it's the same today, 
back when I was in school, if a teacher assigned a three-page paper, I wrote as big as I could write. Why? I wanted to fill up the space, right? If the, peach, if the teacher assigned a 2,000-word paper, I talked about anything that was remotely related to the topic because I wanted to fill up space. So was Jesus trying to fill up space in the Bible? Did he have a certain word count that he had to reach, and so that's why he put verse 35 in there? I don't think so. Jesus had a purpose for everything that he said, didn't he? So there's got to be a reason for verse 35 to be in this story. But before we look at the reason, I want to remind you of a few other illustrations that Jesus uses in various places. We are supposed to be lights, and we sing a little song, This Little Light of Mine. We're supposed to be lights, but who's the light of the world? Jesus. Okay, we are supposed to be sheep. We're, we're like sheep, but who's the Lamb of God? It's Jesus. We're supposed to be shepherds to the flock he has given us, but who's the good shepherd? It's Jesus. I would like to suggest that we are supposed to be good Samaritan neighbors, but that he is the good Samaritan in the parable. And if he's the good Samaritan, could it be that we are the innkeepers and that's why he put verse 35 into the story? I want you to think about it for a minute. This is a, a hotel in Bukhara, Uzbekistan. It's just a, a, a fairly standard hotel, a beautiful old hotel that we stayed in when we were there. Day after day, if we are the innkeeper, we go about our jobs, checking people in and out of our hotel, cleaning the rooms, changing the beds. Maybe we're wheeling patients in and out of surgery. Maybe we're a dentist fixing teeth. Maybe we're chairing meetings or preparing lesson plans for school, or, or maybe we're students and we're studying for exams and writing papers for teachers. Or maybe we're a mom or a nanny and all day long we're, we're washing dishes and clothes and wiping runny nose and feeding the baby all night long and then we're supposed to wake up the next morning and still be smiling and happy and cheerful about everything. And you know, whatever it is, we all know what it's like to be so incredibly busy that we don't think we can handle another thing. Our heads are just barely above water. And it seems like in the midst of that frantic time is always when the Good Samaritan comes. And he doesn't just want a room in our inn. He brings somebody into our lives that's going to demand more than we think we can possibly provide. You know, I, I think probably all of us, at least in our minds, if not really verbally, we've all probably prayed a prayer like this. No, please, God, not them, not now. I mean, send them to somebody else. I don't have time today, God. Maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. I don't have time today. I don't have the money. I don't have the energy. I don't have the expertise. Lord, I, I don't even understand their language. Lord, I don't even like the smells coming out of their house at mealtime. I mean, send somebody that understands them, not me. Send somebody else. But the Good Samaritan doesn't just come to us and bring some extra work. He actually has the audacity to lay two coins on the counter and say, I've given you what you need to take care of them. Now, I want to ask you a question. What nationality was the innkeeper? The Bible doesn't say, does it? It doesn't tell us what nationality the innkeeper was, and that's okay because it really doesn't matter. I want you to assume with me for a minute that he's a Jewish innkeeper. He's standing there at his counter, busily doing whatever innkeepers do, shuffling papers, checking people, whatever he's doing. He's standing there, and the door opens, and there in the door of this Jewish innkeeper's inn is a hated Samaritan. You know, if you think the feelings between Muslims and Jews are bad today, there were really bad feelings back then, too. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. There stands a blood-covered hated Samaritan. And he's dragging with him a half-dead Jew, okay, it's a Samaritan in the door, dragging with him a half-dead Jew that he says he rescued from the ditch. Oh, yeah, right. 
If you were a Jewish innkeeper, you'd say, no way. I mean, he probably beat him up right around the corner and almost killed him, and now he wants to dump him on me so he can escape and get out of here. The Jews thought the Samaritans were a bunch of liars. They wouldn't have believed anything that that Samaritan standing in the door would have said. Okay, let's say maybe it was a Samaritan innkeeper. And the door opens, and there stands a stupid Samaritan. Okay, I'm a Samaritan innkeeper, but, but that guy is really stupid. Look at this. He's dragging with him a half-dead Jew, and he wants to put the bloody guy in my clean sheets in my hotel? I mean, why didn't... I don't really believe this, but remember, I'm talking like I was a Samaritan innkeeper. Why didn't he just leave him out there to die? One less Jew would have been good for the world. You know, if you were a Samaritan innkeeper, that's what you would have thought. Either way, the innkeeper has a problem, doesn't he? Either way, the good Samaritan in the parable is coming to the innkeeper and asking him to go out of his comfort zone and help somebody that all of the friends and family of that innkeeper would have said, man, you are crazy. Why in the world did you take that risk and do that? He often comes to us and asks us to cross ethnic and cultural, language, socioeconomic boundaries in order to care for the people that he has placed near us. He doesn't say it will be easy. But he lays the coins on the counter and says, I have given you what you need to take care of them. Do we believe that? You know, around us, and I'll talk more about this later in another one of the seminars, but around us in the Western world, Europe, Australia, North America, there are millions and millions of Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus. 75% of them say they don't know a single Christian personally. Oh, we do business with them. We check in and out of their hotel. We eat in their restaurant, but they don't know us as a friend. We don't know them. We say, oh, Lord, let somebody else. Let, let Pastor Homer over there in Mena take care of the Muslims, not, not me here. I mean, and yet you have a freedom here that I don't have over there. Or I can be over there saying, well, Lord, let them take care of them in Louisville. You know, not me over here. It's too dangerous over here. We're all in that danger of saying, Lord, have you really given me what I need to take care of them? I don't know the language. I, 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 and we have all our excuses. You know, there was a little five-year-old girl in, in uh, Collegedale, Tennessee, she was too young to be a missionary. At least that's what everybody thought. She and her family were in a program called Kids in Discipleship. Any of you heard of that? It's, it's a wonderful program. It teaches families how to disciple their children and then how to disciple the people around them. Uh, they, the, the program, the families involved in that, were getting ready to go on a mission trip. And everybody was being trained. Some of them were going to run a dental clinic, and some of them were going to run a VBS, and some of them were going to do a building. And everybody was being trained except the five-year-old. She was too young to be a missionary, so they just let her play. But eventually the planes took off and landed in, in that Latin American country. I don't remember which one. And... Everybody around them down there spoke Spanish. But they started into their projects. They had translators, or they knew some, a few people knew Spanish, and they started into their projects, and everybody was working except the little five-year-old. She was too young to be a missionary. But in the midst of one of the vacation Bible school programs, her mother was leading out up front, and, and in the, they, she had a huge room full of kids, and in the midst of that VBS program, her little five-year-old daughter stood up, walked out the door, and started walking across an empty lot. Well, any mother would be worried anywhere that that happened, but especially she was worried here in this strange country. What happens? Where's my daughter going? What might happen to her out there? So she called over one of the elders, and she said to him, can you just follow her? You don't, you know, she, little kids sometimes can get upset if somebody tries to interfere with their plans. So can older kids, so can older people. But, but she didn't want to have a scene, but she said, just follow her. Don't, don't let her get lost or hurt or something. Well, they were gone a long time. 
And when they came back, they sat in the middle of the group until break time. And during the break, the elder came up to the mother and he said, I didn't know that your daughter spoke Spanish. <laughs> no, she said, she doesn't speak Spanish. We've never lived near anyone that speaks Spanish. He said, wait a minute. I just followed her over there across that vacant lot and listened to her for 15 minutes while she talked to those kids over there about Jesus in beautiful Spanish. <laughs> no, the mother said, you just know both languages and you got mixed up which one you were hearing. <laughs> uh, no, he said, I, I think I know the difference between Spanish and English. The mother called the little girl up and said, honey, what were you doing when you left? And the little girl said, well, Mommy, Jesus told me to go tell those kids about him. And Mommy said, oh, that's nice, honey. But how did you tell them? You don't speak Spanish. And the little girl, and you, you can picture a little five-year-old saying this. The little girl said, duh. Maybe she didn't quite say that, but she said, Mommy, Jesus told me to tell them about him. So I went, and Jesus stuffed the words in my mouth. But I'm tired of speaking Spanish now, she said, and she ran off to play with her English-speaking friends. You know, oh, that we would have the heart of a child, that we would believe the good Samaritan when he comes to us in our inn and says to us, Mr. Innkeeper, Mrs. Innkeeper, I have given you what you need to take care of them. We say, oh, no, Lord, show me. Let me see it first. But he says, I've given you. Go, and I can give you the words or whatever it is that you need. You know, we're standing on the edge of the Jordan River. I believe it's time for Jesus to come. I don't know how it's all going to happen. I don't know how the millions of people are going to see and hear. But we're standing on the edge of the Jordan River. The obstacles around us seem immense. Sometimes we wonder, how can we ever accomplish what needs to be done just here in the little city of Louisville? And we have massive cities. How can we ever do it? But I want you to remember that God doesn't tell us to figure out how to get across the river. When Israel was standing there at the Jordan, he didn't tell them to figure out how to get across the river, did he? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a list maker, I'll confess. I, I'm always making lists and plans and and I would have been sitting there thinking, okay, let's see, 10 people per boat. How many trees do we need to cut up in the mountains of Lebanon? And how long will it take us to get everybody across? God didn't say to them, figure out how to get the people across the Jordan. What did he say? He said, walk into the water. And when they stepped into the water, God opened the river up. And who got the credit? Did Joshua get the credit for figuring out a way to get the people across the river? No, God got the credit because he finished the work. And that's where we are in history today. We're at the edge of the Jordan River. God doesn't want any of us to get the credit. He just wants us to step into the river. And he can open it up and finish it. A number of years ago, before many of you were born, the Berlin Wall came down. Suddenly, unexpectedly. We weren't ready as a church. We're praying that in the Middle East and North Africa, we will be ready when the wall of Islam collapses. I believe it is. When it happens, will we be ready? Will we have people in place that can carry on the work? Let me show you a little about the Middle East and North Africa. This is our union. 20 countries, 500 million people. To illustrate how big that is, you know that the world church is divided up into 13 divisions and MENA. So we have 13 divisions, and sometimes they include us in that group, even though we're not a division. We're attached directly, this, this blue area, we're attached directly to the general conference. The population of MENA is way bigger than 10 of those 13 divisions. There are only three divisions in the world church that are bigger than MENA for population. There, there are only, those are the three divisions that have more population than MENA. There are only three divisions, uh, let's see, in, in land mass, MENA is bigger than Europe. It's bigger than any two African divisions combined. 
It's, it's way bigger than the United States. In fact, there are only three divisions that have more land mass than the Middle East and North Africa Union. But to me, the most challenging way to illustrate what we're facing in MENA is this. If you divide up every Seventh-day Adventist in the North American division so that no two of us live in the same apartment block, even husbands and wives, everybody, we divide us all up, put each of us in a different apartment block, and if every Adventist contacts one person a day, it will take us about a year to contact everybody living in the North American division. Now, one contact isn't enough usually to bring somebody to Jesus, but that would be a start, wouldn't it? In a year, we could contact every person living in the North American division if we each contacted one new person a day. Okay? If we did that same thing in India, it would take two years. A much bigger challenge in India. If we went to South America, which used to be one of our major mission fields and now is sending missionaries, it would take five months. If we went to the Philippines, you hear a lot of groups going to the Philippines, and there are still massive needs everywhere, but if you went to the Philippines, it would take four months. In Southern Africa, Indian Ocean Division, in fact, all three of the divisions in Africa, it would take about two months to contact everybody living there if every Adventist contacted one new person. But if you divided up everyone in MENA so that even my wife Barbara and I lived in different cities, and if we each contacted one person a day, it would take us 450 years to contact everybody that currently lives there. We have almost no Adventists in that massive territory of the Middle East and North Africa. It seems like an impossible river to cross, but God has only asked us to get our feet wet, and he will open the doors, and we see that happening over and over again. Sabbath, I'm going to tell some more stories about what he's doing. In the other seminars that are coming up, I'm going to tell some more stories about about what God is doing. It's amazing what he is doing even in these countries that we thought we couldn't do anything in. Every time we get an Adventist into a community, they start to find people who are having dreams, who, who were waiting to hear, but they need to see that person. They, often the dreams are pointing them to someone uh, that is living in their community that they can go and see. I, I was, Barbara and I lived in Africa a couple of times, and one time we were, we were in Zambia, and I was driving a, a four-wheel drive uh, land cruiser. It was my first time ever driving a vehicle where the steering wheel is on the wrong side of the vehicle. Okay, there it was not the wrong side, but it seemed like it to me because I'd never driven one. Now I have a lifetime truck driver's license from Zambia to drive a banana truck. I finally learned well enough. And then later we had the same situation when we lived in Cyprus. And I've gotten quite used to switching from one side to the other. But at first it was quite a challenge, except on this trip it was no problem because we were driving out through the Zambian bush country. We were just on a little two-wheel track, and it didn't matter which side of the road you were on. There wasn't any side to be on. We were going to a clinic, a small clinic, way out in the bush there in Zambia. And as we drove along, at one point, we came to a cluster of huts, and and I saw men and boys standing around those grass-roofed huts with long poles beating on the grass roof, and I slowed down to see what they were doing. And they proudly dropped their poles and showed me what they were doing. They ran around quickly and gathered up by their naked tails handfuls of dead rats that they had just killed in those grass roofs. Now, these were not uh, Zambian pest control, They weren't exterminators. They were husbands and fathers who were gathering supper for their family. I shuddered and I thought, oh yes, how these people need to hear the gospel. And drove on. Okay, we do that lots of times, don't we? We came to the clinic. I mean, that's where I was headed, to the clinic. I didn't have time to stop, right? Okay, I drove on, got to the clinic. They had a clinic, a school, nice program there. It was a beautiful place. They had a little church. 
And I asked one of the, one of the men that was working there, oh, so how many people come to, to your church each Sabbath? It looked like it could fit about this many people. I figured maybe 150, 200 people. I said, well, it's Africa. You know, maybe they get three or 400 people in there. I've, I've ridden in matatus and things where you can pack 15 people in where the Harmony, my niece, knows all about that. You can put how many people on a motorcycle, Harmony? <laughs> we can pack people in. And so I thought maybe quite a few would be there. And he said, oh, just a handful. I said, really? With this bustling community, with this clinic, with this school, with all the projects you have going on, you only have a handful of people every Sabbath? He said, well, yes. You see, he said, every Sabbath morning, we break up into groups. And we go and, and visit every house and community within a four-hour walk of here on Sabbath morning. I said, wait a minute. Do you, are you telling me that you get up early and you walk two hours and you have a Bible study or a branch Sabbath school and then you walk two hours back? And I was really feeling guilty. You know, I felt pretty proud of myself this morning that I walked from the hotel over here to the convention center. Uh, two hours? I mean, they said, no, no, we get up very early and we walk four hours. And we hold a branch Sabbath school or a Bible study and we walk four hours back. And we'd go further, except that it's dangerous to be out late at night and it gets dark too soon and so we can't. But they, are, they were covering every home within a four-hour walk every Sabbath. They, they believed the Good Samaritan. He said he had given them what they needed. They didn't have a truck. They didn't have a car, they didn't have a motorcycle, they didn't have a bicycle, but they all had two legs, and those with longer, stronger legs walked further, and those with shorter legs walked shorter, and, and they were covering every home within a four-hour walk. And I said, oh, Lord, why don't I believe you when you say you've given me what we need? We walked down through the sesame fields to a little house that they had, and and there was a, a big tree out in the clearing, and under the tree I noticed a, a small gravestone, and I just walked over curiously to see what might, who might have been buried there. I, I expected maybe a grizzled old missionary that had given his life for Africa, but I saw an 18-month-old American baby boy had been buried there in that grave just a year before, a year and a half before maybe. I asked about it, and they told me about a couple that had come as volunteers with their baby to work in that clinic. They had given their hearts to the people of Zambia. They had worked hard. The people loved them. They loved the people. But one day when the father was in town with the only vehicle, the baby had come down with a case of malaria and died before the father got back that night. And they buried him under the tree. and. About a year later, just a few months before I had come, they had gone back home to the United States with empty arms and aching hearts. You know, years went by. I forgot all about that experience. A few years ago, I was in Tennessee at a little church. I was speaking there, Sabbath school and church in the afternoon. And as I was sharing stories in Sabbath school, I was talking about the sacrifices that missionaries make. And I told about a number of experiences of sacrifices, but I didn't think about this one. I never mentioned it. At the end of Sabbath school, a young woman came up to Barbara and I, and she was crying. She said, my husband and I volunteered in Africa once in Zambia. And she said, we were out at a remote clinic and our baby died and we buried him under a tree there. And suddenly I was crying too because I realized I had stood by her baby's grave. What a sacrifice they had made to help take the gospel to that part of the world. You know, it's, it's time for Jesus to come. There are massive numbers of people here and around the world that have never heard they still need to hear what we have heard. But often we throw up our hands and say, I can't do it. Lord, send somebody else. Lord, maybe it's not the right time. Maybe somebody else would understand their culture, or, or it's dangerous and illegal over there, Lord, or we don't have the money. But the Good Samaritan comes to us and he says two things. You remember he said to the innkeeper, I have given you what you need to take care of them. And then what did he say? He said, whatever sacrifices you are asked to make, 
whatever else it costs you, I will repay you when I return. Now that's a wonderful promise, isn't it? God has said, I've given you what you need. I don't care where you're living. There are people around you that need to hear the gospel. God needs you to become their friend. You know, what I long for is to see a group of people individually. Now, I'm not saying that we do this as a group, but who will go into a, a Middle Eastern restaurant, who will go into a Chinese restaurant or, or an Indian restaurant and make friends with the people that are there. Go to the hotel where somebody is, you know, from one of those countries managing it or ride with the taxi driver who's, who's from Pakistan or somewhere. Get to know them. Get to know their names. See them over and over again. Okay, this will cost you some money, but let's say that you have a Middle Eastern restaurant. Maybe it's, maybe it's a Lebanese restaurant or something, and, and you've gone in a few times, you've gotten to know the guy's name, and you're trying to think and pray, Lord, what could I do to somehow connect with this man? Well, maybe your brother is having a birthday party coming up pretty quick. Why not ask them to cater your brother's birthday party for you. In other words, at your house, get them to come and provide the food and serve it to you. Somehow you've got to find a way to become good enough friends, even if it costs you money, to get into their home or them into your home. And I guarantee you, if you invite them to your home, eventually they will invite you to theirs, and the discussion will begin to grow. We have millions of Muslims around us here in the United States and we're in a free country, and most of them don't know a single Christian that they consider a friend. Why? Because we've never gotten to know them. I want to challenge you to get to know them. The Good Samaritan has given you what you need to reach out to the people around you. He will help you, and then whatever sacrifices it costs, he will repay us when he returns. We've got a few minutes before we need to quit. Are there any questions? You can always contact me at info at adventistmena.org or get one of my cards up here at the projector or come over to our booth. Uh, Mindy and Philip, Mindy and Philip, wave your hands. They're with us in Mena. They live in Egypt. Uh, Mindy is helping to direct our, our tent maker program. You can talk to her. We have Bruno in the back is one of our Waldensian students. Bruno, wave your hand in case some are new this time. We have quite a few working at the booth that you can talk to. But any questions here now? Yes. That's right. God wouldn't want us to. Okay, she's saying, what, would, what could you start praying for, even if you can't drop everything and move to the Middle East right now? And that, that's a very good question. I appreciate that. God doesn't call everybody to go to the Middle East, thankfully, because then if he did, who would, who would be a witness here in, in Louisville? Who would be a witness in the other places? We need people everywhere. I'm often reminded of the story of Jeremiah we just studied about in the Sabbath school lessons. You remember how Jeremiah was telling everybody to surrender, to leave Jerusalem and go surrender to the enemy. But when Jeremiah tried to leave the city, what happened? God allowed him to be arrested and sent back into the city. God allowed him to be kept there in Jerusalem, even when he was trying to do what he told everybody else to do. God doesn't want everybody to leave home and go somewhere. But everybody can start praying. And often when we start praying, God begins to lay a burden on our hearts. I would challenge you to pray for a couple of things for us. One would be pick a country and start praying for it. Study about it. God may have you end up picking three or four countries, or he may lay a special burden on your heart for that country. Pray for our big cities. I'll talk more about that in some of the other seminars, but we have massive cities. We have hundreds of cities without a single Seventh-day Adventist in them. We have cities, many, many cities, that are 5, 10, 20 times bigger than Louisville. We have many cities that are far bigger than any city in the United States. And some of them don't have a single Adventist in them. 
So pray for our big cities. Start looking at the biggest cities in the Middle East and North Africa and pray for those. But I would, most of all, we're praying for laborers. The good Samaritan told his disciples, the harvest is ripe. Pray for laborers. That's what we need. We need people who will come. You know, this afternoon at 1.45, the, the seminar that we're going to do is we're calling Miniskirts, Mothers, and Muslims. And it's not just for ladies. It's for anybody. It's about culture. I think you will enjoy it. There's, we're going to have a lot of fun things in that. But about why it is that we can't connect with our Muslim neighbors. Why is it? that 75% of the Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists say they don't know a single Christian they can call a friend. It's not because we don't want to. So why is it? What's wrong? We're going to talk some about the cultural differences. That'll be this afternoon. A few more minutes. Any questions that anybody has? Yes. Lots of medical mission opportunities. We... We are not like some parts of the world. We don't have any Adventist medical institutions. I wish we had some clinics. We're trying to get one started in Egypt. We do have some Adventist dentists in Tunisia who are former Muslims that are now Seventh-day Adventists um, that operate uh, some clinics there. But we have no medical facilities or institutions, but lots of opportunity for medical missionary work. We have many doctors and nurses that come and, and work in our part of the world for money. Many of them are Adventists, sort of, but many of them don't, aren't faithful Adventists. We want dedicated Adventists who are willing to stand up for what they believe who will come and work in those, in those cities. Mindy is the one that's helping to coordinate that program for us. So yes, we have many opportunities for, for medical missionary work has many facets. We have opportunities and can get visas for people who have degrees and specialties in medical fields. But we also have opportunities for others who are just willing to share the health message as we know it in a quiet, simple way with family and friends. That makes a huge difference as well. As, as Adventists, I'm always amazed. You have these two groups in the Middle East, the Jews and the Muslims, that are always fighting with each other. But as Adventists, we have tremendous opportunities with both of those groups. You know, we, we don't drink alcohol. We don't eat pork. Okay, over here, some people think that's a negative. Over there, when I tell somebody, they'll say to me, are you a Christian? And sometimes I will say, well, what do you mean by that? Because if I say Christian, they think I'm a pagan. They think that I drink alcohol, eat pork, pray to saints, uh, bow down to icons, and live like the soap operas. That's what they think is Christianity. If I, so if I say Christian, I'm not really connecting with them. I'm just shutting the door. So if they say, are you a Christian? Sometimes I'll say, what do you mean by that? And they'll say, well, uh, I, I, uh, I don't know what I mean by that. Are you a Christian? And I'll say, well, I'm a believer in Jesus but I don't eat pork and I don't drink alcohol and I don't kiss icons and they say, then, then you're a Muslim, you're not a Christian, you're a Muslim, you're a better Muslim than I am, you don't even smoke. And it opens a lot of doors that way and we can talk. There's a lot of other things we need to talk about but at least I haven't shut the door right at the beginning. Our health message has a powerful impact, especially in MENA. Any other questions? Yes. Biggest missionary need is people. We just don't have enough Adventists there uh, of any sort. Uh, I applied to those regions more than 10 years ago. Okay. I never got a response, but it was a minion back then. Yep. So is there a big difference now? Well, I'm not wanting to criticize. He said he applied 10 years ago to the Middle East area and never got a response, and is there a big difference now? Um, I don't want to criticize anyone that was doing the work before us. We all build on the work that went before us. And yet we have tremendous needs, and we are trying not to let anybody that contacts us not get a response. God doesn't always open the doors. But when somebody emails me, 
I pass it on to Mindy or to Brian at the booth or, or some of the others that are dealing with various aspects, and, and they, they follow up on it. And we have, in the last three years, we have added 200 missionaries of various sorts. Some are students that we're putting in universities. Some are tent makers that are coming in. Some are volunteers that come for, for a year and help us in various projects. All kinds of different things. We're trying to say, Lord, if you've put a burden on somebody's heart, we must have a need that matches that. Will you open the doors for it to happen? Now, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he says, no, I'm, I'm needing to redirect that person. That's not where I need them. But many times he's opening the doors and we're finding a match. All right, let's pray together and then we'll meet together for those that can this afternoon at 145. Dear Lord, thank you that you are the Good Samaritan and that you've given us a role as innkeepers. Lord, we want to be like you. We want to be like the Good Samaritan. But we also want to be faithful innkeepers and take care of the people that you bring to our lives. Sometimes you place us among them. Sometimes you place them around us. But either way, give us the wisdom the ability to reach out and touch their lives and not offend them and turn them off. Lord, I pray that you'll bless each one here. Fill them with your spirit. May the very atmosphere that surrounds them impress people as they come into their presence. And then give them the ability and the wisdom they need as you've promised. And then, Lord, whatever sacrifices you ask us to make, whatever it costs us financially or personally, we know you will repay us when you return. May that day come soon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.